The Bible reading today comes from Nehemiah 8. 8, sorry. I'm reading from the ESV version. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he, as he opened it all, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense, so the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their ways to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra to scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in the booze. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, 
from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name's Jim. For those who don't know me, I'm one of the leaders here at the church. Just want to say thank you as well to Jim and the worship team, wherever you've gone. Uh, just give them a round of applause. That'd be really good. Thank you. Also, thank you to, um, not another Jim, Rebecca. Uh, thank you, Rebecca. Also, congratulations to Rebecca and Elliot. They got married a couple of weeks ago, so maybe just a round of applause for Rebecca and Elliot over there. It's great to get to have known you. So, uh, like I said, I'm Jim, one of the leaders here, and it's a real privilege to be back with you speaking today on this chapter. Well done for getting those names right as well. Fantastic work. Um, a couple of things just to say before we get into today's talk. Many of you know, if you don't know, but many of you know Kerry Snuggs, part of our family here, and a member here at the church, and she heads up the Acts of Kindness charity. She's just received, and I've heard about it today, and she's honoured with the British Empire Medal. Um, for supporting and caring for many of our community in practical ways. So if you want to give her a round of applause, again, that'd be fantastic. She does some great work for the community, and we're so blessed to have her as part of our church family here. So thank you, Kerry and Gabe, as well. So today, we're jumping back into our series, Rebuilding. And uh, we had a, a week off last week. We had Bev, one of our interns here, uh, speak to us from Two Kings, looking at the selfless servant. So this week we're back into uh, Nehemiah 8. And we've been looking at the parallels between, uh, I guess, as the Jewish community came back from captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem. We've been looking at the parallels as to what we can glean from that. And as we return back to church perhaps back to our life groups, perhaps as we emerge into the world a little bit more. What does it mean for us as, as individuals, as followers of Jesus Christ, but also collectively as a church as well? So we've checked out the first seven chapters. I'll take on a very brief tour, um, but I just want to say, if you've not listened to any of the sermon series, check it out on iTunes, YouTube, um, however it is you like to engage with uh, the ministry here at Waypoint. So we looked at the first week, which was crisis, didn't we? When Nehemiah heard that the city walls had been destroyed. And then the renewed vision to go back and to rebuild those walls, the starting of the work, the dealing with the opposition. Do you remember Sanballat and Tobiah that they were against it? And actually it was important for, for Nehemiah to put up, um, I guess, defenses around the wall to stop that attack. Uh, achieving authentic community. So there was a lot of uh, mistreatment of fellow Jews towards one another. And so Nehemiah had to sort out the relational differences that were going on in the camp as well. Subtle opposition. And then two weeks ago, Keith spoke to us about what sort of place will church be when we return to it. That was kind of his main challenge. But he looked at some of the key ministry areas that Nehemiah kind of sorted out. He looked at the, the Levites, the singers, and the gate, uh, gatekeepers as well. Do you remember that? Can you remember that? If, you have, if you've not heard any of this, this is all news to you or you've forgotten it, please check it out online. We'd love for you to engage with us uh, online as well. So it was a place of security. Can this place be a place of security? of godly instruction, going to be a place of godly leadership, a place where we all know the story that we're part of, God's bigger kingdom narrative. It's so important that we don't just see church as the best expression of our faith, but actually it's wherever our context is, our mission field. You know, are you following Jesus in that everyday uh, rhythm? So, first seven chapters, 
Nehemiah really sorts through the practical needs, the building, the relational needs as well. He sets up a really, really strong structure and setup. But there's something missing, something significant missing, and that is it didn't have this solid foundation. It didn't have this solid foundation. And so, as we heard from Rebecca, thank you, Nehemiah 8 is about restoring the significance, the foundation of the word of God amongst the people there. So he knew, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 7, he knew this wasn't just a a building project. This was a a rebuilding on scripture project as well. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. So Nehemiah and the Jewish people, you get this sense that actually there has been this spiritual lethargy. I guess um, a spiritual indifference. And I know for many people over this last year, it's been really difficult, hasn't it? Do you not think? You can say, yeah, that's cool. There are some yes, which is good. It's been really difficult because church has been such a great place for us over many years to come together, to be refreshed, be renewed, to be prayed for. And so has life groups as well, and that's been cut off. And so actually, for some people, it's, it's been a lot of a drifting period this last year. And sometimes this is about just revisiting. What does it really mean that I believe? What does it really mean, sorry, what is it that I've said yes to all those many years ago? So that's really what this series is about, helping you to get back to those basics. And scripture is so important of that. I think the word revival gets banded around quite a lot. But that's really what we're looking at here. Now God is the sovereign God and he creates revival. But actually there's some key components or ingredients of revival. And one of those is scripture as foundation to us, the word. Previously, people of the book, as they were known, the Israelites in the Old Testament history, They would kind of swing one way or the other. There would be seasons where a king perhaps was wicked and God would withhold his blessing and pour out his judgment. And then another season where a king would, I guess, recapture his godliness and the whole nation again was close to God. There would be seasons of really heartfelt worship. And you see this swing as people move away from scripture and God kind of, I guess, judges in some way. And blessing is, is removed from them. And then people move back towards Scripture, and Scripture becomes foundational again. And you see this season of joy happening. You see it in the New Testament as well, even though relatively it's quite a short period. The end, sort of from the resurrection to the end of the New Testament, is only about 40 years. But you see it as some churches move away again from Scripture. You see this kind of challenge. Get back into knowing the Word. Make it your solid foundation. Hebrews 5.12 says this. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God and his word. In later passages, it says you're weak need, in need of a new grip. They're in need of this reviving. You seeing it? They're in need of this reviving, and scripture was a key ingredient, a key, a key component of revival. I guess that's the challenge today. It's can we be people of the book? And that sounds a little bit <laughs> cultish. I'm sorry about that. But it's, it's, such a, it's such a foundation for us. And there's many people that are struggling with that right now. And we'll come into that in a bit of detail in a minute. I've got a quote from John Piper. Now, many of you might not know who John Piper is, but I think he's a solid guy. And he says this, In the history of the church, the term revival in its most biblical sense has meant a sovereign work of God in which a region of many churches, many believers, become lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into a conviction of sin, earnest desire for more of Christ, and importantly, his word. Importantly, his word. And then he goes on to say that when people are like this, and when they rebuild their faith on scripture, 
no matter how difficult that can be and how challenging that might be, you see conversions. You see a boldness of witness. You see joy-filled worship. You see people really understanding the context and the mission field that they're called to. It's exciting, isn't it? It's exciting. I think it's exciting. <laughs> if you don't remember the first lockdown back in March last year, there was a lot of chat about revival. Some of you might know that. A lot of chat going around, especially on social media. Some of the sermons that I was listening to and watching as well. And I still think, I'm not one for grand statements, but I still believe that there will be a revival pretty soon, if I'm honest. I just feel like that's in my spirit and talking to different people that I know. But I do think, not that we can manipulate God by doing this, by the way, I do think it's about returning to Scripture, having that as a foundation as a key component of seeing that. Partly also because I think when I'm walking and talking with lots of people at the moment and discipling them and supporting them and praying with them, perhaps I see the opposite, if I'm honest, towards Scripture. I see a lot of people that are neglecting it and have neglected it for a long time uh, for all sorts of reasons because uh, it's confusing, it's too long. I used to get that when I was working with the young people, I used to get that long, it's just a bit too long. So don't, don't try and read it from cover to cover, just read one page at a time. It's too long, it's a bit boring, uh, it's, a bit, it's not very PC, is it? It's, um, it doesn't really fit in with my worldview. It's written by men, so it's a bit biased. You hear all those, I hear all those conversations still now. And I get it, right? I totally get it. And it's totally appropriate and healthy to wrestle with Scripture, to be frustrated by it, even, to be challenged by it. But let's not neglect it. Let's not neglect it. It, can be, it is foundational to your walk with Jesus. It is. No matter how hard that might look, it is foundational. That's what we're talking about today. It's what Nehemiah and Ezra in particular was trying to get the people of God back to understanding. It's foundational. Sometimes I think we'd sooner have an opinion on the Bible rather than really know it. And I've been, in that, I've been in that part of my life as well, where I'd sooner sort of just palm off that part of the Bible, not read that, bit, but that part of the Bible, whatever it might be, for whatever reason it could be. But actually, I think it's probably because it challenges us. I was chatting to Kevin beforehand in the, as we were praying, he's smiling at me at the back. And uh, I think often we struggle with the Bible, not because it's, long or whatever it might be whatever you think it could be but because actually it challenges us on a personal level it might challenge us on a public level as well our comfort our perceptions our priorities our lifestyles the things that the world say is fine that we really want it to say is fine and it doesn't say it's fine and that's hard to work out because you know when you're in relationship with people that's difficult isn't it that's really difficult how do you apply the bible when your relationship with someone is perhaps doing something that you know in scripture isn't necessarily what God would like them to do. It's not surprising that when you read Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires, doesn't it? Scripture has that power. Do you believe that? You don't have to. That's fine, but I'm hoping they can challenge you today. It's like a surgeon's knife that reveals God's character it reveals God's character. That's scripture. It's more about God. Sometimes we can read scripture. We want to read ourselves. It's about us. It's not. It's about God, his revelation, his standards. It's not just ticking a box for our own standards. That's why I think 2 Timothy 3.16 is so important. It teaches us. It corrects us. It rebukes us. It revives us. It challenges us. I believe that God breathed into, God inspired into his word. And then when you consume that word it's like the spiritual lungs you were given when you said yes to Jesus it just fills up those spiritual lungs I hope that makes sense 
No matter how difficult that can be, as you read God's word, which is alive, it's God-breathed, it's God-inspired, it fills those spiritual lungs that you've been given. And so I guess my, my challenge for today is, if scripture can move from being optional to being foundational, I think it can become transformational, no matter how difficult that can be. Can we move scripture in our lives to becoming foundational rather than just optional? If we can, it becomes transformational. Okay, right. So returning to Nehemiah 8, to give you some context. Who likes um, New Year's Day resolutions? Anyone ever done a New Year's Day resolution? Anyone? Put your hands in the air. A few people. Not many. I'm not a big fan usually because I give up on like day three, to be honest with you. I'm not very good at it. I usually get back to the chocolate or don't really go to the gym that I've just signed up to, whatever it could be. Uh, but you read here in the passage, don't you, that it was um, the seventh month. But actually in the Jewish civil calendar, it was the first month. So it's like a New Year's Day. We're reading into New Year's Day in, in chapter eight. You with me? Called Tishri, right? This is, the new, this is the first month of the Jewish calendar. It's like a fresh start, a new chapter. A new opportunity to do things. Nehemiah has done some practical stuff, some set-up stuff, some structural stuff, some relational stuff. And now he kind of steps aside and he brings in Ezra to get the foundation right, the, the, the spiritual stuff, to get that right. He steps out of the light and Ezra steps in. And Ezra, if you don't know, is a contemporary of Nehemiah. He's basically a priest uh, who had permission from King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, where they were under captivity, to go back to Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah and to start to re-establish the Mosaic law, which is basically the uh, religious observances of the first five books of what we now call the Bible. Making sense? Good. So it's his turn to lead the people. Nehemiah sort of steps one side, Ezra shows up, they build this lovely big pulpit, this lovely big platform, and I find this interesting that it's not in a temple, which traditionally, which is where it would have been. It's by the water gate, which means what? It's public, right? It's a public reading of God's word. Usually in a temple, there would have been segregation. People couldn't have gone into certain courts. Children wouldn't have been allowed in. Certain people wouldn't have been allowed in at all. But this is a public space. My mind went to, when I read this in scripture, I went to the fact that this is for everyone, right? Scripture is for everyone. So often you could probably look at me and go, oh, you know, Jim, probably you went to Bible college, I hope. <laughs> and therefore, um, you know, it's just mainly for you because it interests you or, you know, perhaps for Keith or whoever it might be. It's not. It's for everyone. This is, a lovely, this is an amazing moment that just captured my heart when I read it. I was like, this is for everyone, young and old, male and female. And that's a challenge to you. It's for everyone. It's not just for, for, for me or other teachers. It's for you as well. It's a crucial moment in the history of Jerusalem right here. God knows what he's doing. It's an open platform for everyone to understand as it reshapes the community. So I've got three things. The first thing's already up there. <laughs> Thanks. Three things I want to talk about today. It affects the mind, scripture, affects the heart, and also the will as well as we obey the word of God. So it's the mind, the heart, and the world. So the people were positioning themselves in such a way that they could hear and they could listen to God's word. But that word understand comes up six times in this particular passage. Six times. So during Nehemiah's time, most people could not read scripture. Just wasn't, they weren't able to. So that's why I have this collective togetherness of scripture being read out for six hours. Which is crazy. They were still up for six hours, right? 
Did anyone think when Rebecca was reading that passage, anyone think this is quite a long passage? Anybody? <laughs> I, I did. It was beautifully read. That's not what I meant. But, but this was six hours. They were all stood up. And occasionally they would break out in worship just because of God's word. There's no music. They just break out and worship. It's incredible, isn't it? I think it's incredible. It challenges me. When I read God's word, do I worship him as a response to that? Maybe that's challenging you this morning. And so what you have is the six hours scriptures being read. And then a little bit like your life group leaders just pop up. They kind of go amongst the people and they help them understand it. They help them start to apply it and get the meaning right. And uh, that'd be an interesting Sunday, wouldn't it? If I just spoke for 20 minutes and your life group leaders came in and just chatted with you guys. Um, but it's that kind of feel. Are you with me? They get, they're kind of getting the understanding. It's not just listening not just stood there or, or sat here listening to someone else and hearing it. They get into grips with actually understanding it. Do we do that? Someone said to me once at Bible college years ago, you don't just read God's word, you study it. You study it. Because it's easy when you read it once or twice just to go, oh, that was interesting. But to really study it, to really get it in here, in here. This is an immersive, under, kind of immersive condition what was going on right now. Six hours of, of scripture. People going around chatting to each other, helping to apply the scripture as well. It's a very immersive experience because it's about the mind. To get scripture as foundations about renewing your mind. It's good to see Matt here today. Matt used to be in the youth group years ago. Sorry if you're online, you can't see the people. But Matt was in our youth group years ago. And up on the wall, I don't know if you remember this, there used to be um, an image of a shoal of fish going one way. And a single fish going, I'm looking at it, a single fish going the other way. Someone else might remember this as well. And I just had, just had the words, do not conform, written on it. Do not conform, which is taken from Romans 12, verse 2. It says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I used, to, I used to kind of use this scripture, especially in exam period time. Because what do you do in exam periods? What I used to do is panic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, rubbish exams. I used to cram, you cram your mind, don't you? Textbooks, tapes as it was back then for me, post-it notes, a lovely exam revision guide that I never used. It just looked good on a bit of paper, never really used it. But you fill your mind, you renew your mind. Does that make sense? So that you can get to an exam and you can regurgitate it all on the paper, hopefully not physically, but mentally. And so there is this, sorry, I used to get really upset about exams, never mind. Uh, so there is this sense that actually uh, the more you get into scripture, uh, the more it begins to really take effect on your mind. And Ezra knew this. He knew for Jerusalem to be this transformed community that was, had the foundation on scripture. They had to really understand it. I think one positive, or very few positives that have come out of COVID this season, is... Um, I've loved the way that I think certain people have relied less on me, us, this experience, life groups, and have really taken it on themselves to get into scripture. As a church here, we've got an online Facebook page that is um, called The Gathering, and within that people share regularly their devotions. Lectio 365 is quite a big thing at the moment, books that they've read, um, just thoughts on a sermon or sharing a different passage, that kind of stuff. I think it's been one of the few positives that's come out of this season for the church is people, some people, have really flourished as a result. They've really taken on this need for daily bread to get scripture as foundational. 
in their life. It's been really encouraging because the more they've done that, the more they begin to transform their minds. And the more it transforms your mind, it begins to transform your thinking and how you act as well. In Matthew 13, Jesus highlights this when he compares receiving and understanding the word to the planting of a seed in the soil where it takes root and bears fruit. That's the word. That's, that's understanding the word really does, where it, where it takes root and it bears fruit, if you really get to grips with scripture. And who wants to be fruitful? Anybody? Good. There are hands. That's great. So it begins to move beyond this intellectual thing, hearing, listening, but understanding your mind to a place of where it begins to affect your heart. It really affects you as a person. I don't know your response to scripture, but often I can just be completely bowled over by it. I hope some of you can as well. You can just read it and something can just jump off the page at you. Ezra, when he finished reading, they were crying. They were weeping, probably because they'd been set up for six hours. No, because they recognized themselves in scripture. They recognized themselves. Scripture has the power to do that. As we respond to the word of God, it begins to affect your heart. They had an awareness of their sinful state. They were actually working through different festivals and different days in Scripture here. This is what Ezra was reminding them of. One of them was the Day of Atonement. If you want to check out more about that, Leviticus 23, Numbers 29, looks at some of those Jewish um, religious observances. What does it mean? It was, a, it was a remembrance. That's why they did it. And they'd pulled away from that. And so Ezra's just reminded them, you guys have pulled away from this. This is why you're spiritually indifferent right now. Scripture's not foundational to you anymore. You're not honoring God in that way. And so there is an initial reaction where scripture again hits them in the heart. And you see this weeping and this mourning as they recognize their sinful state, as they're convicted. They had this Hebrews 4.12 moment, a surgeon's knife moment that cut straight to the reality of their situation. A couple of years ago, during bedtime devotions that we do, I think I said I would share this. I'm going to share it because it's, it's fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Emily and Obi, my two kids, we do devotions a few times a week. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, we were looking at the conversion of Saul in Acts. And uh, you know the moment that Saul's scales come off his eyes and he, he gets it? You know that moment? Check it out in Acts if you don't. Um, and uh, I looked up and Emily had tears coming down her face. And it was beautiful. It's beautiful where the Holy Spirit and the word that she's alive just penetrated her heart. And she just went, I get it. I get it, Dad. I get it. Scripture has that power. Do you believe that? It's inspirational. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's really not easy. For all sorts of reasons. Personal reasons, public reasons, whatever it might be. It's not easy to live out. It's not easy to allow it to, to affect you. But it can. It transforms you. That's the power of Scripture. I remember getting home in my late teens, possibly not in the best condition sometimes, and seeing my mum in the front room, my old house, and uh, she'd be on the floor in tears. She'd have the Bible out, she'd have notepads around her, and I'd be like, what's going on? You're so weird. And she'd be like, Jesus is great. And I'm like, what? I didn't get it. I get it now. Scripture just spoke to her. It brought her along this journey of conviction, of cleansing, right? Scripture has this power to convict, to cleanse, to heal, and then to lead you a place of celebration. This is why you see in Nehemiah verse 10, chapter 8 verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't, don't mourn anymore, move on. Okay, we've moved through this process. 
Verse 12, then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words. Because they now understood it, there was a response of joy. When you read scripture, it could hit you anywhere. It could be the conviction. It could be the cleansing. It could be the joy that comes from knowing that you are saved. But it doesn't just stop there. Ultimately, ultimately, the understanding and responding to the word leads to the people obeying the word of God. It's the will. It's the will. We see a direct impact in this passage of scripture transforming those straight away. Verse 15, go proclaim this word. Verse 16, so the people went out. They just did it. They just went out. You're seeing a revitalized community because of scripture, because of their trust in scripture. Which I think is a big thing for a lot of people now. Their trust in scripture. I was chatting to Keith, who's one of the leaders here at church, um, a couple of weeks ago now. I'm going to try a song out on you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to sing the whole thing. But if I sing this, can you fill in the blank? Are you allowed to? Oh, can you? We'll do it. The wise man built his. Right. Okay. The wise. No, I won't do it. Okay. Yeah, if you don't know that song, then, well, I don't know. Maybe you're fortunate. I don't know. The wise man built his house. When we think about the rock, what do we think about? Not the guy, the WWE guy. When you think about the rock, who do you think about? Jesus. Well, Keith challenged me to actually say the rock is obedience. The rock is obedience, right? I'll read it. Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Obedience to scripture is wisdom. That's what Jesus is saying. Obedience to scripture is wisdom because it's, he knows what's best for us. Even though sometimes we think we know what's best for us, he knows what's best for us. You don't read anywhere in scripture, Jesus spends a bit of time with his disciples and then says, right, see you next Tuesday, half past seven. Yeah, we'll do the next lesson. And then next week we'll do another lesson. You know, I'm going with this. What he does is he gives them his words. He sets them a challenge. Go work in my kingdom. And then whenever they regathered next, that afternoon, the next week, whenever it might be, what do they do? They chat about how's it been going? How's it been going? As you've lived out the word that I've given you, the instruction that I've given you, how's it been going? Wouldn't it be great if that's the place that we operate in as fellow believers? How's it been going living for Jesus this week? Really rubbish. I wasn't great. I made mistakes. I didn't step up. I should have said something to this person. Get it. Well, let's pray for each other, right? Kingdom mission stuff. That'd be, I'm excited by that possibility as we rebuild. Are you? How's it going operating in God's kingdom? It's been brilliant this week. Brilliant. Let's pray. Let's rejoice. Let's give thanks to God. That's what Jesus was doing. He wasn't just going so you could get information. Another phrase, because Keith loves a phrase that has been going around my head, is information doesn't lead to transformation. <laughs> It doesn't. You might go away from today going, oh, that was an interesting phrase that Jim came out with. But it can just stay as interesting, can't it? That was, that was right. It's short at least. That's a good thing because it's hot out today, so I'll get some more sun time. <laughs> but information doesn't lead to transformation. Obedience leads to transformation. As, no matter how hard that can be. No matter how hard that can be. Otherwise, we just end up being hearers of the word all the time. And never doers of the word. Moving on to verse 16, 17. So they start to put the, um, the booths up, tabernacles, tents, whatever you want to call it. 
And there's a few things that that represents. The first thing is, it's a reminder of God's provision during the wilderness years, the 40 years in the wilderness, God's people. And so they, they're being reminded, actually, God, you are great. We've completely, we've moved away from Scripture. We forgot how great you are. So we're going to get these tents set up again. We're going to return back to that place where you provided for us for over so many years. It's an act of worship putting these tents up. But also it was a great reminder to the Jewish community that this wasn't their permanent residency either. <laughs> right? This new Jerusalem that they come back to, as shiny, as beautiful as it is, this place, that's, this is not it. <laughs> this is not it. They had a bigger kingdom narrative going on all the time. They understood. They were looking for the Lord to come. Are we excited by the Lord returning one day? I hope so. I really hope so. God's kingdom is coming now. He's calling you to bring it about as well. But also one day there'll be that glorious moment, won't there, for us. Do we live with that kingdom mentality to encourage us, to spur us on, to keep our eyes on him? I hope so. Scripture has the power to do that as we are obedient to it. It also served as a great witness, putting these tents up around the place on rooftops and courts and stuff. It served as a great witness to everyone else that was looking on. Oh, these, guys are, uh, these guys are serious about their lords. They're serious about scripture. This is having a direct impact on us now as the way that they live has a direct impact on, on who we are, what we're seeing. Who is this God? Someone, used, someone had a canvas up in the old youth room years ago that just said, um, your life is the only Bible some people read. I don't know if you've heard that before. Your life is the only Bible some people read. Some of the older youth are going, oh, I remember that. Your life is the only Bible some people read. It's so true. Do you embody the gospel? People's understanding of God, of Jesus, will come through you. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's powerful, isn't it? What a privilege, what an honor it is. If we are obedient to scripture, it speaks to those around us more than often our words can. Let's be honest, our words can be quite cheap. We can say all the right things, but unless you say it off the platform, unless you do it on the Monday to Friday, Saturday, whenever it is, then it's just words. There's a warning that goes to this with this, I think. Because this can come at personal cost. As we become obedient to Scripture, we, as we trust it, perhaps for the first time, perhaps as we return back to Scripture, as we trust it, it's hard, isn't it? To live out this walk with Jesus. It's hard to be obedient to him through Scripture. Because it challenges us, our sin, our pride, our comfort, our wanting to fit in. Wanting people to like us, not wanting to rock the boat. But that's not what we're called to. That's not what you see in Scripture. Not, it's not just information that doesn't lead to transformation. It's comfort that doesn't lead to it either. So often we want to just be comfortable in our walk with Jesus. And that doesn't lead us anywhere. The only real tension, healthy tension that brings transformation as we're obedient. Last thing on this before I wrap up. I appreciate it's a little bit heavy, but I'm hoping this is challenging you guys. I'm hoping the Spirit is, is working amongst you. I'd be, lo- be lovely to chat with you, by the way. If you've got some questions about anything that I say, or you want to email me or just chat afterwards briefly, it'd be great. Anyway, verse 17, and there was great joy. And there was great joy. As they lived out Scripture, there was great joy. As they were obedient to Scripture, as they lived it out, they chose to willfully follow the Word, and great joy followed, and it flowed afterwards.
And there's nothing quite like joy as a motivator, is there? Is there? So often when you think about scripture, you feel a little bit guilty. I've not read it enough. I don't understand it enough. But imagine reading scripture as an opportunity for joy. <laughs> there's great joy. Because as you read it and you apply it, there is this sense that God is blessing you. James 1.22 says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. You forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law, that sets you free. And if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. God will bless you for doing it. I can't think of anything more joyful than receiving God's blessing by being obedient to Scripture. So, to finish, I believe the way to a revived heart is to get our heads back in the book, to be people of the book. That's how we personally get transformed. That's how we publicly become transformed. Starts with understanding. Immerse yourself in scripture. Please chat with me if you think, I don't know where to start. We'd love to help. Love encourage you. Love to equip you in that way. Moves to that response. What is scripture saying to me personally? What is it saying to me? How is it affecting my life? Is it something that I need to sort out first? Perhaps you're in a stand, right now you're thinking it's about conviction. It's about cleansing. It's about healing. Perhaps it's about joy. What is scripture saying and doing in your heart? To a place of the will. Acting it out. Being obedient to scripture. Living it out. And I think ultimately that will lead to a revived heart. As individuals and collectively there gets a sense of a revived community. I'm excited by that. I'm excited for your journey. Can we be people of the book? I hope so. I really, really hope so. And I pray so. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are sorry for the times that perhaps we neglect it for whatever reason. Sorry for the times that perhaps we would sooner trust someone's opinion on your word. We sooner trust our own understanding rather than actually looking at yours. Lord, for those of us right now that are perhaps are really struggling at allowing scripture to be foundational, Lord, I just pray that they, you will just pour out your spirit on them. You will re- remove any obstacle, whether it's shame or sin or guilt, whether it is an insecurity towards your word, whether it is um, a nervousness. What does it really mean if I live this out? What does it mean for my friendships? What does it mean for my, my workspace, Lord? I just pray for a real boldness, as we just heard, as we get back to the basics, as Ezra was recommitting this community in Nehemiah 8. Lord, may we be like that as we regather, as we rebuild here, Perhaps it's about rebuilding our faith again on your word and trusting it. Holy Spirit, come. May we not be resistant or scared about your leading. But we invite you in. We want to be more transformed. Sometimes we don't have to guess because it's already in your word. Lord, we want to have that heart, a root that bears fruit because of your word, Jesus. Come. Challenge us, encourage us. We pray in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.